The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Before I read our passage, I had really intended, I told our life group last Sunday night, uh, if they were going to read ahead, I thought they would be safe to read verses 3 through 12, and uh, we won't get anywhere near that today. We're going to look at three verses today. Uh, I I preached the first two verses last week, and... um, Um, We'll look at three, Lord willing, today. But um, verse 3 begins our passage today with the words, "Blessed, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And before I read the rest of this, I I just think that is an incredible place to begin. To implore us to praise. To call us to bless the Lord. This is an incredible, a beautiful place to begin, especially for hearts that are weighed down with discouragement because of suffering. And I just want to remind you, this is who Peter's writing to. These are elect exiles. They're living away from their eventual, their their homeland, where their citizenship is. They're not there at the moment. They are in a a land where they are looked at as outcasts. Their their behavior, their beliefs, their faith, what what it's costing them is off-putting to the people around them. And they look around and probably they suffer for it. And Peter starts no other place than to say, bless the Lord. And it's a good reminder for us because when, when we are at our lowest, when we are maybe depressed because of suffering, that's not a place for us to, to just run into ourselves and just wallow in our misery. Instead, that's the place where we need to praise God more than any other place. We sing songs not because that's just part of what a church service is. We sing songs together because we need to be a singing people. All throughout Scripture, the the Bible, the, the people of God were singing people. They sang to their God. They blessed their God. Well, in ancient Israel, there was a particular prayer known as the 18 Blessings. It was recited three times a day in the synagogue. Uh, each one of the blessings ended with the refrain, Blessed be thou, O Lord. And so imagine, if you will, the words, Blessed be thou, O Lord, just cascading no less than 54 times from the house of God every day. Bless thee, O Lord. This is what Peter calls us to. And while explaining this in, in his commentary on First Peter, David Helms um, writes this, In our text, Peter calls upon his earthly readers, wherever they may be, to stand and praise God, to bless God, as it were, with 18 blessings. Now, there's not actually 18 blessings in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, but you get what he's saying. David Helm continues, and he says, Peter knows that when their echoes of blessing are made in response to his call, their hearts and minds will be transported across the rugged terrain that separates them from their spiritual homeland. And thus with one phrase, even a single word of praise, Peter gathers a distant and scattered people on his wings and in mutual prayer carries them all the way to the throne room of heaven. And that's the business of praise. When we take time in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of whatever's going on in our life, to bless the Lord, to praise Him, to worship Him, we are carried away from this exiled place into the very throne room of heaven. That's the business that we're about when we come together and when we praise him separately. David Helm wrote this, and I think this is a beautiful, this is kind of where I I got the intro for this sermon. David Helm, as well as Peter knows, when you bless God in Christ, 
you come home. And that is a beautiful picture that when we worship, we come home. And so I've entitled this message this morning, Praise God While You're Homesick. Praise God while you're homesick. So let's look at these three verses together, and then I want to give you some reasons for why we praise God. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's in the middle of suffering sometimes, maybe in the middle of persecution, that we might be tempted to think, what do I have in this moment to to praise God for? Why should I praise God? Everything seems to be going wrong. No one likes me. My life is not what what I thought it would be. It hadn't turned out that way. Why should I praise God now? Well, today I want to give you four reasons out of these three, three verses of why we praise God when we're homesick. Number one, we praise God when we're homesick because, verse three says, he has caused us to be born again. The word, the, the little phrase there, to be born again, is to have new spiritual life. Now, often, if you look around in our culture today, you might see the slogan on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or on a, on a Facebook or, or an Instagram post, something that says, born just fine the first time, or born okay the first time. Well, that's, that's probably exactly how a person without the Lord who's, uh, who, who does not know the gospel of Jesus Christ should feel. When I stand as a preacher of the gospel and I say, you must be born again, if I'm, if I'm dead in my, in my trespasses, if I'm in my flesh, I don't have the spirit of God within me, I don't know the hope that the gospel brings, I'm probably going to react that way. I'm probably going to say, preacher, with all due respect, I think I was born okay the first time. And, and we can get angry or, or, or get bristled by that reaction, or we can just be gut-level honest with, with those that feel that way and say, if it were just me, if it was just the preacher standing here before you saying that you must be born again, then you might have an argument. But Jesus Christ, the, the perfect Son of God, the forever, infinite, eternal one, says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's not just us that are standing here saying to, to, to those that are outside of the gospel, you've got to be born again. It's God himself saying this. The, the, we, we praise God in the midst of our homesickness because he has caused us to be born again. There's great encouragement here. What it means is, for, for us, if to be born again is to have new spiritual life, it means that this new spiritual life is not dependent on us. That we can't take credit for it. I mean, no one here can take credit for your physical birth, can you? You know, I decided to be born. For me, I decided that uh, June 4th, 1974 had a nice ring to it. That... 6474 was, was great, and so that's the day I picked. You know, no, I can't take credit for that. No one can. You know why? Because birth was something that happened to me. 
I didn't, I didn't choose it. Birth is something that happens to us physically, and the reality is that spiritually birth is something that happens to us as well. We can't take credit for it. But the flip side of that is true as well, that our spiritual life doesn't depend on us because we can't disqualify ourselves from it. That no one here can say, I decided not to be born on a particular day or at all. That when God, when he says here that he has caused us to be born again, he is saying something very important. That it does not depend on us. That we can't be good enough and we can't be bad enough to bring it about or to deny it. Instead, what, what he says here is straight from the text. He says it is according to his great mercy. That it's dependent on God and His mercy alone. That's why we we talked about this last week, but Romans chapter 9 verse 15 says, God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The fact that God has caused you to be born again, to have new spiritual life, to be a follower of His, is something that has happened to you. We praise God in the middle of it because we had nothing to do with it. God in His great mercy leaves us, leaves us in just the, the awe of our new spiritual life, our new status of being born again. And all we can say is, He caused me to be born again. He loved me for no apparent reason. Not because I chose Him or not because of anything. He chose me. And the reality is we praise God when we're homesick because He's caused us to be born again. I was thinking about this, this issue of being homesick. When you're homesick, all you want to do is to get home. Isn't that true? That's all you want. You just want to get home. How many of you, you know, you've got kids and and maybe it was years ago, maybe it was last night, something, I don't know, but they're spending the night with somebody and you get that call and they're in tears. Dad, I just want to come home. What's wrong? You'll be okay. You're having fun there, aren't you? I just miss being home. No, they, they, they got all, I bet they got all kinds of junk food there. Dad, I just want to come home. Aren't they playing all kinds of crazy games there? Dad, I just want to come home. Right? And no matter what you do, you're going to wind up pulling your jeans back on and getting in the car and going over there and bringing them home, right? Because when you're homesick, all you want to do is come home. The reason we praise God when we're homesick is because it, our, our getting home doesn't depend on us. If our getting home depended on us, we would never get home. David Helm wrote, Our ability to arrive safely at God's home is rooted in God's mercy. Praise Him. Bless Him for that mercy. Amen? Second reason why we praise God when we're homesick is because we have a living hope. It's the exact phrase in verse 3. We have a living hope. You know that all the world knows is a dying hope. The only type of hope the world knows are are, are dying hopes. I'm not saying that to stand up here in some ivory tower and look down and just condemn everything that the world celebrates. It's not what I'm doing at all. I'm just telling you that everything the world hopes in, apart from the glory of God and, and being brought into His home one day, everything else will waste away. Everything else is dying. Everything. 
That's why Job chapter 8, verse 13, in, in the midst of some advice, he was told, Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Now, be it there in the midst of maybe some ill-given advice, it's true. That, that, the, that all the hopes, the hope of the godless shall perish. No matter what you're putting your hope in outside of a relationship with the Lord and, and being brought into His forever home is, is going to fade away. It's going to perish. Proverbs 10, 28 says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. And you say, well, I, I know some people that don't know the Lord right now, and they seem to be doing okay. I mean, they seem to be getting everything that they, they could ever want in this life. And here I am, barely keeping my head above water, and, and I'm treading along, and it doesn't seem like the Lord sees me at all. And he seems like he's given them everything they possibly could want. To which I would say to you, just wait. Just wait. Because there may be seasons where the person without the Lord who does not treasure God above all things will experience all the treasures of this world. But God tells us that all the treasures of this world will waste away. That the only type of hope that the world knows is a dying hope. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul wrote, Remember that you were at that time, before knowing Christ, separated from Him alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's what it is without, to, to not have a saving relationship to the grace of God in Christ. All the world knows are dead hopes. If you think about our culture and, and how they view what happens after death and this afterlife, it's really not that much different from the way it was in the Greek world at this time, in Peter's day. For, for, the, for the, the modern mindset or the, the Greek mindset in, in Peter's day, um, life was hopeless, had no meaning at all. It was just, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. and Man, just live it up while you can because tomorrow you're going to die. What led one commentator to write, uh, speaking of the, the thought of the Greek in, in Peter's day, the despair of this life is followed only by the unending night of death. And this was the thought in, of, of the people in Peter's day, that, that life is meaningless, it's pointless, have all the fun you can get, step on as many people as you can, live for you, because after this life, there's going to be this endless night that you'll never wake up from. And if you talk to people in our world today, a lot of them feel the same way. Well, there's really not much to live for in this world. I'm going to get everything that I can. I'm going to put myself first because there's coming a day when it will just all be over. This is the only life I have. You only live once, right? And after that comes this darkness that you'll just never wake up from. And again, this is a natural response. If I don't know the Lord, if I don't have the Spirit living within inside me, if I don't have the Word of God that shows me that there is indeed a heaven and there is indeed a hell then I'm going to hope that it's all there is. That the worst suffering that I could possibly imagine is simply to go to sleep and never wake up. But the reality is that's not what the Bible describes. The only hope that the world knows is a dying hope. But we, as children of God, as followers of Jesus Christ who have been bought by His blood, our sins ransomed by Him, we have a living hope. One that is genuine and vital in contrast to, to one that is empty and vain. The word hope in the Bible, the way the, word, the Bible uses the word hope is not I hope we get to go there tomorrow or as all the 
school-age kids in the room are saying, I hope we don't get to go there tomorrow, right? It's not the way the Bible uses it. The Bible uses it not as, a, well, I don't know, but I hope this happens. The Bible uses it as an eager, confident expectation that you count on it, that you write it down, you know it's happening, you know it's coming. It's this eager, confident expectation of the life to come. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. The reason that you and I can have this confident, eager expectation, write it down, know it's coming, is because Jesus has gone before us. He becomes that sure and steady anchor behind the veil. We have a living hope that's through, notice what the text says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That it's not just some willy-nilly hope that's out there, but it's this sure hope that's based on real, tangible evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about who's writing this to us. Is this not Peter? You remember the stories we've read of Peter in the Gospels? Peter was always the one who would step up and say, oh, no, 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 if everybody else walks away from you, Lord, not me. I'm going to death for you, Jesus. I'll be the one standing at your side at the end. Was he? No. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, he fled. He followed closely at some, some distance there when, when Jesus was taken away and he was arrested and he was tried because we know that he was watching that at one point, the language of the Gospels tells us that he even possibly, probably made eye contact with Jesus while Jesus was being scourged, perhaps. And Peter, in the midst of that, as he, he's following and he's promised, if everyone else leaves you, I won't. He's denying Jesus three separate times. I don't even know the man. What are you talking about? And he begins to curse and he begins to to distance himself from him. And it says that when Jesus, when Jesus is arrested, when he's beaten, when he's taken to the cross, when he denies him the third time, that Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. He's a broken man. Everything he thought was going to be true was not true. He had put all of his eggs in the basket that was Jesus. And now, on Friday, he looks up and Jesus is nailed to a cross. Jesus utters, it's finished. Jesus breathes his last, and for Peter, it was over. Every hope that he had was over and done with. But the Bible tells us that the story doesn't end there, that Sunday morning comes. And Peter has wept bitterly and he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's so ashamed and he's so hurt and his world has come upside down. And all of a sudden the women come and they say something very strange. They say, the tomb's empty. We, we, think, we think Jesus is alive. And Peter's one that runs to the tomb and sees it's indeed empty. He's, he's not there. It's this amazing report, and he's not there. 
Later on, we read in the Gospels that Jesus meets his disciples on the shoreline, and he particularly meets with Peter. And he asks Peter that series of questions, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And we know that in, in those moments between Friday and Sunday morning, that for Peter, his world had come crashing down, and he was defeated, and, and he just went away from everyone, and he was into himself. But on Sunday morning, when Jesus rose, from that point forward, Peter was preaching. It was like Forrest Gump in, in, in that movie. From that moment on, he was running, right? From that point on, Peter was preaching. You read in Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. We read all throughout the, the New Testament from that point forward, and we see how Peter preaches the gospel even to the point where it costs him his life. The promise that he made to Jesus before Jesus was crucified, he couldn't keep, but now he keeps in the end. And what makes all the difference? Is it not the resurrection? Is it not the fact that Jesus not only died, but he was raised from the dead? The resurrection made all the difference in Peter's life, and the resurrection makes all the difference for us as well. We don't merely praise God for new spiritual life, this, this sort of disembodied just spiritual life that we have that has no effect on our, our physical bodies at all. We don't simply praise God for merely this new spiritual life, being born again, but we also look forward to resurrected and redeemed bodies as well. That the fate of Jesus will always also be our fate. That what happened to Jesus causes us, because Jesus was raised, that we also can look forward to the end of our lives and to the end of the world, not with fear or with dread, but with confident, eager expectation of the life and the world that is to come. Edmund Clowney, in his commentary, said, Peter writes of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. That's a great quote. You and I can live with this confident, eager expectation of the future in the present because of what's happened in the past with Jesus going to the cross, not only dying there, but also being raised. The resurrection makes all the difference. We don't merely praise God for this new spiritual life, being born again, or this future existence of having new resurrected bodies, but we also praise God that right now in the middle of our living today, we have this living hope. The word living there is meant for us to understand it as a word that is right now living in us. That God gives us grace for every day. That Romans chapter 6 is true when it says in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It speaks of walking now in newness of life. Not waiting until we have these resurrected bodies, but right now in these bodies with this new spiritual life, we walk in this new life. Romans 6, 11 so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's this faith coming forward in us as we walk through this day and age, looking at persecution in the face. For these that he's writing to, they are suffering because of their faith in the Lord. But they reckon themselves dead to the world and alive to Christ. And they live with this living hope. 
We praise God when we're homesick because not only have we been made alive, made, made to be born again, but we also have this living hope. The third reason that we praise God when we're homesick is that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance, verse 4 tells us. Uh, the word inheritance in the Bible speaks of it, it, it is the believer's share in the heavenly kingdom. I was talking with somebody before the service. My, my grandfather passed away several months back, and uh, my mom was asking me and my sister, you know, be thinking about maybe something you might want of your grandfather's. And um, my sister wanted this fan that used to sit on the counter in my, my grandparents' house. It was one of those old metal fans. If you, Some of you know what I'm talking about. Most of the time, General Electric written on it. It's metal. The, the guard on it, I didn't know why they put this guard on there because it wouldn't stop anything. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard my mamma say, now don't, don't, don't put your fingers near there. I'll cut your finger off, boy. You know, because there's these big metal blades. That's what my sister wanted. Um, and, uh, and, and I went, went this past Monday and picked up my grandfather's truck. Uh, somebody out here a minute ago said, that's quite a difference. Your sister got a fan and you got a truck. Well, um, my sister just didn't ask for the right thing, I guess, you know. <laughs> Reality is that truck will rust, fall apart one day. That fan will quit working and it'll become scrapped for the landfill. But for the believer, we have a share in the heavenly kingdom. In Ephesians 1, Paul told the Christians in Ephesus, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him you also, in verses 13 and 14 of, of Ephesians 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. The Spirit of God lives within us as this guaranteed, hey, the inheritance is coming. It's yours. No one's taking it. Verse 18 of Ephesians 1, Paul said that he prayed for them to know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the Old Testament, the inheritance was tied to the land. It was a portion of the land that was promised to them. Well, this was good and bad. In, in their experience, as those who had, who had lived through the Old Testament days and were, were Jewish by, by, by heritage, they had, they had known this inheritance of the land. They'd been given this. But in their experience, their inheritance, the land had been at times taken from them by these rogue nations. Babylon and Assyria and all these others had come in and, and, and taken them out of the land, had, had conquered the land and, and, and carried it away, carried them away or taken the land from them. At times their land had been defiled by their own idolatry. They had began to worship other gods. They had, they had married people who were outside of the faith and, and other gods had come in. They had known their, their land to be taken from them, their land to be defiled. Many of them had died waiting for their inheritance, never receiving it. That's what Hebrews talks about. The reality is, though, that you and I have a very different experience. As Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, put it, Peter's readers have been born anew not to obtain a family inheritance in the earthly land of Canaan, but, obtain, but to obtain an inheritance in the eternal city of God. 
And perhaps you're here today and maybe, maybe there was something that you had that, and your experience is like that of the Israelites where there was something that you had that was yours that has been taken from you. Perhaps it's, a, it's an earthly possession or perhaps it was a relationship or perhaps it's something else that's been taken from you and you grieve today over that. Or perhaps there's something in your life that's not turned out the way you thought it would. You always dreamed it would be like this, but that has not materialized. It just didn't turn out the way you thought. Perhaps you're having the experience of these Israelites, maybe these that are, maybe not even Israelites, maybe they're Gentiles now living among other people in other parts of the world. And your life hasn't turned out how you thought it would. Well, there's good news here that we have an inheritance that's never going to be taken away from us. So what's been talked about here, uh, it, Peter writes in verse 4, he says that our inheritance is imperishable. It means that it's not subject to decay. It's, it's unable to be worn out with the passage of time. It's indestructible. Occasionally, we'll come across products that, that uh, promise that they are indestructible. The reality is, every one of those products I've ever owned, I've found a way to destroy it, right? Um, you know, Lowe's, we guarantee these plants won't, won't die on you. Oh, yeah? Let me bring them home. Put them in my yard. I'll kill them almost overnight, right? The reality is, God says here through Peter that our inheritance is imperishable. It's what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, when he said, To sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. I'm reminded of the Israelites as they walked through the wilderness for all those years, for 40 years, their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out. God can do that in an earthly experience. What might he do in an eternal experience? Romans 8.21, Paul writes, he tells us that the creation itself will one day, but not yet, be set free from its bondage to corruption. Everything you and I know in this world is, is at right now held in bondage of corruption. Everything you and I know at this point, apart from the Spirit of God living within us, apart from His Word, everything you and I know is, is, is in the process of dying and decaying and being destroyed. I mean, look around. When I came to your pastor almost eight years ago, I was 35 years old, you know. 42 going on 43 now, and look, I know that's not old, but my body every day says, you're not 35 anymore, right? Uh, one commentator wrote about that there's this, there's this pull of gravity that just makes everything on you just, you know, begin its descent back to the earth, right? Like, you know, skin's not as taut anymore and all these things, right? Hair, you just have more of it, right? All these things, everything you and I know. I go pick up my tr the, the Papa's truck this week and bring it back. And uh, even though it's been parked in a garage basically since 2010, there's rust behind the back wheels. You know, there, I mean, there's just things on it that just, you know, the dash inside is just cracked. It's going to need to be replaced. And uh, I look forward to doing some of that. But, but I, I do it knowing that everything in this world, everything that you and I know is in the process of perishing. But God says our inheritance is imperishable. He also says that our inheritance is undefiled. It's a word that means unstained by sin, unpolluted by sin, and containing nothing unworthy of God's full approval. You and I struggle to even, even 
comprehend a world like that. And to, to think of a world without any presence of sin or out, without any impact of sin, I mean, you and I can't even imagine that. How many of you locked your cars when you left the parking lot and came inside today? Right? You do that because you know we live in a world that's prone to evil. We, we can't fathom a world without locks or alarms. We can't fathom cities where keys are unnecessary because theft is obsolete. We can't imagine a world where every woman sleeps without fear and every man is honorable and every child is cherished. We can't imagine a world where there are no jails or police officers, where there's no sin, none at all anymore. Another reason, though, that we can't imagine such a world is not, not so much because of the evil that's outside of us, but because we know our own sinfulness. And the sin that's the biggest problem for you is not the sin that's outside of you. It's not your environment. It's not those that are around you. The biggest problem for you and I is this residual sin of our heart. As much as we want to wash ourselves of it, we can't, we can't seem to do it, that Jesus must do it. And Jesus does it at, at the point of our conversion where he makes us clean. Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a reality that while that may be true in a judicious sense as we stand before God, reality as, as we live in this world, there is still this sin that seems to be almost like kudzu that just climbs up around us. We can't rid ourselves of it, so we can't even imagine a world where there is no evil there is no sin. Our inheritance is undefiled, though. That's the world that we are going to while we cannot imagine it is what God promises. Our inheritance is the third description he gives is unfading. It'll never wither or grow dim or lose its beauty or glory. I mean, I was thinking about this as I was preparing and kind of finishing up yesterday. I mean, you know, with this cold weather coming in, I mean, how many of you have been used to these 70 something degree days and all of a sudden today march 12th snow on the ground right i mean the temperatures are going to plummet this week it's going to be i think in the 20s to mid part of this week you think about all these things are in bloom right now what are those blooms going to look like what's this going to do to the to the peaches and the strawberries and the red buds and the dogwoods and all these things it just shows you how fragile our world is he says that our inheritance is going to never fade. You ever lost interest in something that you once thought that you never would? Um, perhaps fashion? Just get out those old yearbooks, right? A lot of you grew up going to high school in the 70s and 80s and 90s, whatever the case may be, and you look back and you think, wow, <laughs> can't believe we did that. Uh, I grew up as a child of the 80s when, when music was rock and roll and Hair bands were the big thing. I look back at some of those guys. I wonder what their hair looks like today. I mean, some of those guys, you know, rockers on the stage, their hair was huge, bigger than any girl I ever dated, right? These guys are just, wow, you know. About half of them are bald right now. They wish they could do that, right? We look back at those styles and we think, man, I, this will always be in style. And then two months go by and it's not. The Bible tells us that our inheritance is unfading that we will never lose our love for it. That when we've been there 10,000 years, our love will be just as strong for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we will be just as content as ever to be with him. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, the Bible here says. It's a completed past activity, the word kept is. It's completed past activity with results that are still continuing in the presence. In other words, God himself has stored up or reserved this inheritance in heaven for believers, and he continues to be there. It it, it continues to be there because he's still reserving it for them. I thought about this. Um, How often do we spend time pursuing things in this life, in this world, that would not be on this list? If our inheritance are, are these things, it's, it's, it's undefiled, it's incorruptible, it's, it's unfading, all these things. How much time do we spend in this world chasing after things that would never make this list? How often do we spend our time chasing things that are not going to last? Things that are sinful or that will lead us into sin? How often do we spend our time chasing the things that we'll grow tired of? Or things that we can't keep? So I was studying through this. I just happened to, God led me to a thought, and I I think it's from him. You know, you turn on the TV today and you see so many TV preachers. You see so much of the, the, the prosperity gospel. The promises, if, if you'll just follow God, then he's going to give you everything you want. Think about what they're promising. They're promising everything that will never be on this list. There are preachers that are fleecing congregations to pursue things that won't make this list. They're seeking to have their inheritance now. The reality is, God says for us that our inheritance is being kept for us until the day when he returns. There's a fourth reason why we we praise him um, in the midst of being homesick, and this is where I'll finish up. We, We praise God while we're homesick because we are being guarded. We praise God while we're homesick because we are being guarded. Have you ever had a thought like this? You know, if persecution were to get really, really severe, really bad in our context, in our country, would I, would I remain faithful to the Lord? You know, several years back, and I was a youth pastor at the time, but when the, uh, when the Columbine shootings happened and the stories came out of, of the girl there at Columbine who had the gun placed to her head and she was asked if she was a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, if she was, it wasn't the way they said it, but are, are you a Christian and uh, the choice was there in a minute. I mean, gun to her head. She said yes. They pulled the trigger and they ended her life. If that were my lot, if, if persecution got really bad for me, would I remain faithful? Would I identify myself as a follower of Jesus? You ever had a thought like that? This was a, a thought that probably was on the minds of the readers of Peter's letter very often. It was something that they were facing regularly. It was perhaps causing them anxiety, and perhaps even today it gives you anxiety. As you look around at the culture and you, you read the different blogs and, and the, watch the news and see the newspapers, and you look and you see how things are going, and it seems to be that, that their country is just turning against uh, Christianity, and you think, will I remain faithful? Well, there's good news. This is what I want us to end on. This is why we praise God while we're homesick. The good news is that you and I, in the midst of increasing persecution, are being guarded. 
We're being kept safe. We're being carefully watched. This is a phrase, to be guarded, is often used in military context. It's like this special detail that's given to you. Think Saving Private Ryan, where this, this group of, of, of soldiers were sent back behind enemy lines to, to pull out this one private who had had uh, three other brothers that had been killed in battle. And this mission was given by our government to go in and save this one private because the family couldn't stand to lose all of their sons. And this is what's going on here. Is God says, I'm guarding you. And it's, it can be seen two ways. We're being guarded, this is the good news, from attack. Meaning that you and I, you know we have a real enemy, right? Satan is, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. We have a real enemy. We're being protected from attack. But also, we are being protected from apostasy. We're being protected from the question that I ask you, if it gets really bad, will I be faithful? God is so sovereignly keeping us that He knows what what it would take for us to turn away. And God is protecting us from this. Edmund Clowney said, it would be a small comfort to know that nothing could destroy our heavenly inheritance if we could lose it at last. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. Same God that's keeping it in heaven for us is keeping us here on earth. Guarding us from attack and guarding us from turning away. He's doing so by God's power. Romans 8, 31-39 What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for you, your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I can praise God in the midst of being homesick. Not home yet, not in heaven yet. Living in the midst of persecution and increasing persecution, you and I can praise God right here because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Jesus was raised, we will also be raised. He's promised to give us an inheritance that is indestructible, won't be defiled by sin. It'll never, we'll never lose interest in it. It can never be taken away because God's keeping it. And in the midst of this, it's not dependent on us to hold ourselves. God's guarding us here. Now, there is faith involved. 
That's why the Bible here says in verse 5, by God's power being guarded through faith. The reality is we are guarded by God's power, but God's power does not work apart from personal faith. John MacArthur said it this way. He said, at conversion, God energizes faith in believers' hearts and he keeps them and he continues to energize their faith. It's the same thing that's being said in Philippians 1.6, that what he began in you, that he'll be faithful to complete in you. The faith he gave you to believe at conversion, he still gives you that same faith all the way through your life to believe in him. One commentator said, Paradoxically, it is the Christian's faith in Christ that has put them in jeopardy with respect to the society. But it is that very faith in Christ that identifies them as legitimate heirs whom God powerfully protects. Here's some takeaway and and just three very quick points. If this is the reality for us, if we can praise God while we're homesick, here's, here's the application. Number one, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for these things. He has caused you to be born again, if you are a child of His, to a living hope, to an inheritance. He's guarding you. Number two, turn away from dead hope. If you're here today and you've heard me talk about those who are homesick and you think, I'm not homesick because I don't know the Lord. He's not my God. I'm not following Him. I'm the one who would say, born okay the first time. But throughout the course of this message, God has opened your eyes and made the gospel good news to you. You realize that things that you're chasing would never make that list and everything else in life has let you down. There's nothing that in this world that has given you fulfillment. All you've ever known is this dead hope. Turn away from it. Turn from it and turn to the living hope that is found through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today that's possible for you. And number three, For those of you who are believers, who are homesick, you're in the midst of this, what I believe will be increasing persecution of living in our land. Repeatedly and often ask God to guard you. Thank him that he does. Ask him to guard you, not by removing you from the suffering, but by giving you the faith in the midst of the suffering to trust him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bless you, Lord, in the midst of being homesick. Lord, we are indeed homesick. Lord, we we look around at our world, and Lord, while at times we say, I I don't want to go yet, Lord, there's things here that I still want to do, and Lord, that's natural. And and God, we we understand that. We've all had those thoughts. Lord, I, I pray, God, though, that we would increasingly have a homesickness in our gut to see you return and to see sin be put away. God, help us to trust you in the middle of it. Lord, thank you that you guard us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would indeed guard us from attack that would seek to destroy our faith. Lord, that you would guard us from walking away. Lord, you know what what we need. Lord, your word never promises that You won't put any more on us than we can handle. But Lord, your word does promise that you will never put more on us than you can handle. So God, I pray that you would indeed guard us. 
Lord, guard us in this, in the midst of what is sure to be increasing suffering and persecution. Lord, help us, God, to bless you. I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond, to think about what's being said, to think about how we are called to this praise in the midst of suffering, and just ask you to respond as the Lord leads. Perhaps you're here and the Lord's given you some specific direction and you need to step out in obedience and take that, then do so. Uh, I'm going to be seated on the front row. I'd love for you to come speak with me. If I can help you at all, I'd love to speak to you. Be people in a prayer room that is out this door to my right, to your left. They would love to pray with you. Whatever it is the Lord is leading you to to do, I'm going to ask you to respond. But if it's just this, uh, this general call to praise God in the midst of suffering, and you have an immediate step of obedience as Ethan leads us. We've put a song at the end of the service, not because we just need something to help us transition. We put a song here because the people of God are to be singing people. And so as we sing this song, bless him. Let's respond as we worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.